0: We are going to take uh, just a one-week break here this morning as we will look forward to getting back into our series in the book of Galatians. We took a couple of weeks off, looked at Advent in particular, uh, and we are looking forward to getting back into Galatians uh, next week. But I wanted to spend a little time to go over this very, very familiar chapter, or perhaps uh, you might be familiar with some of the words in it, some of the phrases in it, some of the truth that is behind it, of course, with these verses. The verses that we just read are some of the most familiar in all of the Old Testament. But I think what's interesting is to situate this particular chapter, Deuteronomy 6, within the larger context of the book of Deuteronomy itself. Especially because Deuteronomy, I would say, is one of the more intriguing and fascinating books in the entire Old Testament. Especially because, at first glance, it appears to be nothing more than just a rehash or a repeat of Exodus. And though there's um, slight variations uh, here and there, overall, Deuteronomy seems to be just a, a giving of the law round two. But in fact, that's not entirely true. Because... Rather than being just some sort of regurgitation of previously recorded material, of stuff we've heard before, Deuteronomy is a vital, vital, and yes, very important book because it gives us a glimpse of how the people of God understood the law of God. It was one thing to just hear God uh, declare the law through Moses, which is what we find in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. But here what we have is essentially Moses preaching the law to the people. Essentially, that's what Deuteronomy is. It's a collection, or we could say a series of sermons if you will, that are delivered by Moses. Each of these sermons, we could say, focus very pointedly on explaining and expounding the law to God's people, to Israel, before, on the very eve, we could say, not technically speaking, but yes, on the verge of their entrance into the land of Canaan. After four decades of Wandering seemingly aimlessly throughout the wilderness. Now, finally, the nation of Israel is on the cusp of entering the promised land. Their sojourn was about to be over. And all of those promises that had been passed down for generations, starting with good old Abraham, they were about to come true. They were about to be realized. And though uh, we don't have time, this is a story for another time. Even though Moses was not allowed, he was prohibited from entering the land. He resolves here to, to unfold and explain the seriousness and the weightiness of God's law for his people, his countrymen, his brothers and sisters, his fellow Hebrews. He takes this time to preach this word to them. And indeed, similar to preachers of today, Deuteronomy sees Moses explaining this word and applying this word for the people of God, which I pray happens every Sunday. So you see, rather than just being... A remix, so to speak, of Exodus. Deuteronomy is actually a very challenging, yes, a very convicting, yes, but also a very comforting look at how life lived according to the word of the Lord is supposed to function. It's a call to arms, if you will. It's a corporate A collective resolution, if you will, to live according to not what man says, to not what other philosophies say, not what other religions say, not to even what I even have in my own heart, but to live according to what God says, above any other noise, above any other message. And chapter 6 contains, perhaps, again, that most memorable or the most familiar portion of this call to arms, if you will, as verses 4 and 5, part of the verses that we read uh, just a moment ago are also known as, perhaps you would know this, they're known as the Shema, or a confession that is central to all of Judaism. Shema is a Hebrew word that just means hear, which comes from that very first word of verse number 4, hear, O Israel. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And through verse 5, this represents, indeed, a confession that is often recited or said twice daily by very or- faithful Orthodox Jews to this day. So, in, in a way, you could say, uh, as familiar as perhaps we might be with the Lord's Prayer from Matthew chapter 6, that is what this is, this prayer, this this confession is to Those who followed Judaism. But despite how familiar. And despite how particular this text is. I think there's a lot that applies to us. Here and now. Thousands of years since this prayer was first prayed. And indeed as we here this morning. At Stonington Baptist Church. Are on the cusp of a new year. I think it's incumbent upon us to Likewise, resolve to live according to the word of the Lord, now more than ever. And whether or not you're one, maybe, maybe you do that. I don't know if this is your tradition or your practice, but whether or not you're one to make New Year's resolutions. I think chapter 6 holds for us a series of resolutions that we should all make, not only this year, but in the years to come. And I've divided them into Three headings, if you will. So three resolutions that I pray we can all make, not only this year, but in the years to come. Number one, resolve to obey. Number one, resolve to obey. In, in, integral. To understanding the law of God that Moses is here explaining that has already been handed down to the people uh, uh, several years before this at Mount Sinai. is to understand that God's people were duty bound, so to speak, to obey it. These words that God was giving to them, they weren't suggestions. God wasn't handing down a series of suggestions to his people when he wrote with his finger the law on that mountaintop. Actually, no, these are the decrees, the very ordinances of El Shaddai, God Almighty. And we're reminded of this with that word that appears 11 times throughout this particular chapter, as you'll find That word command or commandment is repeated very fluently in this chapter. Notice verse number 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. That you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God. You and your son and your son's son. By keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Jump down to verse number 6. And these words that I command you shall be on your heart. Look at verse 17. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And so it goes. Each occurrence of this word has the same meaning to it. It's all—they're all illusions. They're all, they're all references back to that law that was given to Moses himself. We would know it as the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and all of the rest that went along with them. Jump back a page to chapter number four and look at verse forty-four. Deuteronomy 4.44, notice what Moses says. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spake to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. To us, perhaps, many of these resolutions and all these things that are given to the people, they may sound somewhat foreign and somewhat overbearing. But to the people of God, they were vital they were crucial you see Israel is the chosen nation of God they were Yahweh's chosen people look at chapter number seven look at the verse six notice what Moses reminds them of for you are a people holy to the Lord your God the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth They were the ones sovereignly selected by Yahweh himself, by El Shaddai himself, who is here covenanting to unfold his plan of redemption through them. Through Abraham's offspring, as we've noted on several occasions, the world would be blessed. The salvation of this whole earth would come through Abraham's line. And accordingly, as then the apple of God's eye, if you will, Israel was called, they were summoned to distinguish themselves as followers, as the people of Yahweh. That's where this law comes into place. The Mosaic law is what differentiated Israel from every other nation that surrounded them. This is What set them apart. This is what identified them as those who belong to Jehovah. As those who belong to God himself. You see, even though Israel was about to occupy a land that God had promised to them centuries before this moment... That did not mean that everything was going to be rosy. Everything was just going to be easy uh, from here on out. And of course, if you just flip ahead a couple pages, the rest of Israel's history proves that out in painstaking detail. Israel's new homeland here in Canaan was surrounded by pagan nations and societies, all of whom had their own appeal and allure. All the... Appetites and the, and the offerings of the world were all around them. And, and each of them were enticing Israel to, and beckoning Israel to renounce their allegiance to Jehovah alone. That's what all of the creeds and the philosophies of the world were telling them. It was ringing in their ears. They were being beckoned to follow their own authority. To be their own God. If you read the rest of history, you can essentially see the same sort of philosophies that are still prominent in our own day being, uh, being announced and championed in this day as well. Do, do what you want. Live it up. Have it your way. Please yourself. These are philosophies that Israel was to combat. And despite how loud and Enchanting! chanting all of these messages were the people of God they were called to set themselves apart. How? By obeying. By listening and obeying to the words of the Lord. Notice again verse number 2 of our text. Notice he says that you may fear the Lord your God and your son. You and your son and your son's son. How? How are they going to fear by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life? You see, Israel's sort of resolution, if you will, to be obedient to the words of the Lord. This is what identified them as the people of God. This is what identified them as the priceless object of the Almighty's protection and provision and attention. Israel didn't just belong to one among many gods, they belonged to the God, the only God, the God of the whole universe, that's who chose them. Just flip back to chapter number 4, look at verse 35. Moses makes this very clear. Notice what he says. To you, uh, Deuteronomy 4.35, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Jump down to verse 39. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other That's who chose you. That's who delivered you out of Egyptian bondage. That's who has been leading you all of these years of your wandering. Jump back to chapter 6 and look at verse 13. He says the same thing, essentially, in verse number 13 and 14. Notice what Moses says. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you, because there is no other god." Truly, really, they belonged to Yahweh. See, Moses' words are reminding Israel that these laws are they're more than just recommendations. They are the revelation of Of the holy, holy, holy God. They are a revelation. Uh, They are revealing of his authority. And his majesty. And and it's it's the one true God that is being shown. That is being showcased. And now you see Israel's obedience is what is identifying. Is what is marking them as those who belong to that God. The only God. The one who is above all the others. (laughs) They answer to him. A truer and a better authority. And so you see here that Moses is now admonishing Israel to remember that word. To remember the words of Jehovah God. To obey his words alone. Don't obey the philosophies and creeds of all of those other ones that want to deceive and want to entice No other God but the God who had delivered them deserved such careful service. Notice verse 3. You'll notice this word repeated several times in this text. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, to do the commandments, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Jump down to verse number 12. Notice this word again. Then take care, same word in the Hebrew as careful from verse 3, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Look at verse 17 once more. You shall diligently or that is carefully keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. Verse 25, the last verse of the text. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all his commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Be diligent. No one else deserves the diligence that God is here calling you to show forth. No other God deserved it. No other deity that man has concocted deserves such total obedience. Go back again to verse 4. What does Moses call them to? You could summarize verses 4 through 9 with just that phrase. Total obedience, absolute surrender to this one. This one who is the one and only God. No part is off limits before him. Yahweh deserves it all. He deserves everything. Everything. And as you might know, as you might imagine, this was not a popular mantra. This was not a popular notion uh, in those days. And we could even say it's still not. The creeds and the philosophies of the world are still bent on the idea that we, mankind, can be our own authority. We can be our own gods. we, We don't need someone higher, someone above us telling us what to do and think and how we're supposed to operate. That's appealing, isn't it? That's very accommodating, isn't it? Isn't it? But we must recognize all of that for what it is is an affront. It's a rebellion against El Shaddai, against God Almighty. Because like Israel, we too, here today, this morning, we are called to resolve ourselves, to live obediently. According, not to our word or not to man's word, but according to the word of Yahweh himself. No matter what the world says or does or thinks. Your obedience to this book that you have in front of you. It's like a name tag. It identifies who you belong to. The Apostle John would pick up on this theme in his letter in 1 John 2, verse 3. He says, by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. He understands that there has to be, there ought to be a resolve to obey. This is very important for the people of Israel. I think it's important for us. As we look forward to 2024, resolve to obey. But secondly, the second resolution, if you will, back in our text, is also a resolve to revere. Resolve to revere. Because I think it's important to understand and to point out not only why Israel should obey the words of the Lord, but also how they were to obey. Because this is just as important. The why, of course, is easy. They should obey because God is God and he said so. He gave them these words. But the how, how were they to obey is a little bit more difficult to express perhaps. How was Israel supposed to follow these words? What, what should motivate them to follow these commands, these laws that God gave them above everything else? Well, the manner of Israel's obedience is important for us to point out. Because it's, it's imperative that we understand that their obedience was not sort of uh, uh, given or not understood to be through the lens of what we could call karma. Even though we're very often given to read passages like this in that sort of manner, even without even realizing it. If you never really... Study this out. Karma is essentially a philosophy of many Eastern religions, mostly associated with Buddhism or Hinduism. And it all boils down to essentially this right here. Do good things, treat other people nicely, and good things will come your way. Pay it forward. What goes around comes around, right? And these sentiments are so almost ingrained in us and in our culture and in our society. They're so commonplace that we don't even question them. We barely even stop to question if that's how we're operating. And so much so that we often apply the same sort of framework, the same sort of reasoning when we come to the word of God. And it's easy to do, I admit it. I, I'm not going to lie, it's easy. Especially when we read verses like verse number 3. Notice again, what does Moses say? Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do all of them, uh, do the commandments that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly. As the Lord, the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. This appears as if Moses is setting up this if statement. Put enough good things forward and then God is going to treat you well. It appears as if God's dealing with Israel through some sort of karma covenant, if you will. If you do this, then this will happen. Be good and good stuff will be given to you in return. If you obey all day, at the end of the day, you're going to get some ice cream. Maybe, you're, maybe you've employed that parenting tactic. And I'm not going to knock it. It's a good one. Makes sense, Right? You, you, you want your kids to listen to what you have to say. If you do this, then you get that. The problem is, this is not how Yahweh operates. He's not decidedly not a god of karma, nor does he use our parenting techniques to keep his children in line. So how does he operate? Well... Imagine, if you will, a boy and his dad, they're, they're going to go to a fair, let's, the, the Bloomsburg State Fair. And the dad says to his boy, to his son, if he's obedient the entire day, that he's going to get some ice cream. At the end of the day, a nice giant cone of mint chocolate chip is going to be delicious. But the boy isn't good. Imagine that, right? The boy isn't good. He's naughty and... He whines and he complains and he's griping the whole time. And almost as soon as they get there, he says, man, I want to go back home. And the whole day goes like this. The whole time that they're at the fair and they're going to all the little events and all the little shows. And yet, to the surprise of everyone, and maybe there's some people that have been noticing them, right? They're noticing this dad and this really, really whiny boy. And to the surprise of everyone, in the general vicinity of this dad and this son, the dad still shares ice cream with his son at the end of the day. Maybe you're thinking, man, what a softie. <laughs> he gave in. Actually, I would say, that's grace. What do I mean by that? Well, this is precisely sort of the, the image we can have in mind of, of, of what was about to play out with the people of Israel. Because like that whiny little son, after 40 years of wandering, what is that? That's 40 years of complaining, 40 years of grumbling, 40 years of murmuring the whole time. Even when they had just been delivered out of Egyptian bondage. What do they say? Man, I wish we could go back and eat some of the delicious meals back in Egypt. It's so much better. They were about to inherit promised land, which is always described as a land flowing with milk and honey. Does that mean that it had milk and honey rivers? No. It's just meant to get into your mind's eye of how abundant with wealth and riches and prosperity that they were about to inherit. Did they deserve it? Had they... Earned any smidgen of what was waiting for them when they walked into that land called Canaan? Had they paid it forward enough to get on God's good side enough to win this amount of favor and this amount of blessing? (sighs) Certainly not. Not by a long shot. You see, if karma were true, Israel would not have been allowed to enter Canaan, they would have been left outside. So what gives? Why is God letting them in? Because he is a God of his word. And that word is love. Look at chapter number 7. Look at the verse number 7. Deuteronomy seven. 7. Notice this amazing declaration of Moses. It was not... Because you were more number than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's who's doing this. The God of faithful love. Of love that comes from the top down, so to speak. Of love that comes one way. All of these abundant blessings, all of the the milk and the honey and all of the things that Israel was about to enjoy were not the reward for being nice enough and being good enough all the way through. They were a gift. Of the almighty God of El Shaddai to the people that he sovereignly and infinitely loved. Look at verse number 10. That's what Moses reminds them of here. Notice. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities. Notice that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. That's what they're inheriting. He reminds them that everything that they are about to enjoy they, to enjoy, they had nothing to do with. They didn't even have to lift a pinky finger to enjoy all of the things that they were about to enjoy. All of it was already there beforehand. It was already waiting for them. God had already prepared it. The Promised Land is just that—a land promised to God's people, and God, Jehovah God, Yahweh, is a God who always, always, without ever flinching, without ever uh, uh, under uh, uh, going under what He says, He always keeps what He says. He always keeps what He promises. See, God isn't a God of karma; He's a God of covenants. He's a God of promises. And all of the difficulties that eventually came Israel's way, with all of the troubles and the chaos and the, the political upheaval and the vice and the sin that was basically in the streets, was not because God was dealing with them based on some sort of sense of karma. All of Israel's hardships, all of their heartaches, did not become about because they failed to pay it forward enough. Where did they come from? All of Israel's desolation was due to their lack of, of reverence. They had been think about it, they had been given every blessing imaginable as they walked into this new place, and and they still, and they still went after other gods. They still turned to other deities, to other religions, to other hopes, to other pieces and influences of wisdom. To go back if Israel was the bad son enjoying undeserved ice cream. (laughs) Those seasons of punishment aren't God taking their ice cream away. Rather, they're instances of Israel throwing the ice cream back in God's face. They're taking the blessing that God had given them and they're spitting on it. Throwing it down. It's a lack of reverence. And Moses' sermon is here reminding them, we we collectively, the people of God, it's a powerful reminder that Moses gives them to revere this God, the God who chose them, the God who spoke everything into existence, and the God who worked and intervened to deliver them, that God, revere him. Notice what he says, look at verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God. Look at verse 13 once more, it is the Lord your God that you shall fear. Look at verse 24, and the Lord God commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God. Each time that word fear appears means to revere, to honor. This doesn't mean to imply some sort of cowering out of abject fear and that we're afraid of. It's to revere this God. It's to worship him. It's to hold him in the highest of awe and adoration. Yes, oh come let us adore and fear the Lord above all else. That's what Israel's obedience was supposed to be motivated by, to be moved by. And this obedience, all of these laws, all of these commands, all of these things that God was calling to do, what were they? They were a collective lesson to revere the God who had chosen them. And the more they obeyed, the deeper their reverence, and the deeper their reverence, the more willing their obedience. And I would say this, I would hasten to say, the same is true for us. Contrary to what you might think, obedience is not recompense. We aren't paying God back, nor are we paying it forward. Obedience is all about reverence. It's recognizing who God is and what he has done. We should not be motivated to obey the word of the Lord because we're afraid of what God might do or what he might take away. Rather, we should be resolved to obey because we hold God in that high of esteem because of what he's accomplished when we didn't even deserve it, when we didn't even earn it. I think a lack of reference stems from a view of Viewing the things of God too casually, and what do I mean? I don't, I don't mean by that we have to come to church all stiff and, and, and not ha- and, and not jovial. <laughs> I mean, I think that we're just too, too relaxed, too flippant when it comes to the things of God. I've asked you this line of questioning again uh, before, and I'm going to ask you it to you again, just to why why do you, why do you come to church? Why do you attend church? Is it because your friends are here? What if they leave? What happens then? Is it because you, you like the music we sing, you like the fact that we sing hymns? What if that changes? Will that make you leave? Is it because you like the preacher, and what if he screws up? What if he says something you don't like? What then? We are here, my friends. For no other reason than to, yes, corporately and collectively, and yes, together, reverence God Almighty. That's why we're here. This is the whole reason for being here. This is your reason for obeying. Because you revere and reverence this one, this God, the God Almighty. Do your kids know that you revere God? Do they... Do they hear it? Do they see it? I'll just say, I'm going to say this and then I'll move on. It's hard to teach your kids to revere the Lord when you aren't here. Resolve in this coming year to revere the Lord. Not only resolve to revere and not only resolve to obey, but thirdly, lastly, the last resolution I think we find in our text in Deuteronomy is resolve to remember and I'll hasten. Resolve to remember. To remember. See, now we have understood that Moses is preaching the law to the people of God. And he's he's encouraging them. He's admonishing them. He's exhorting them to obey the Lord. To revere the Lord. And all of this, I think, has a specific purpose in mind. And I think it comes to the surface when we get to verse number 16. Notice what he says. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. He refers here to a certain scene in Israel's history and he refers to it only by mentioning the mere name, Massa. And in all likelihood that's all it took for the Israelites who were still alive at that time to remember what transpired at that place. If you want to, you can turn to, actually, yeah, go with me to Exodus chapter number 17. This is the scene that he's referring to. The scene at Massa. And what we find here in Exodus chapter 17 is this sight of gross and abject, if you will, distrust and disbelief on the part of the people of God. A distrust and disbelief in the fact that God could provide. The, the congregation of Israel, so to speak, is, is encamped. They're encamped at a new location. But come to find out there's no water for the people to drink. This is clearly a serious situation. You have hundreds of thousands of people. Kids, women, and, 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 and all sorts of adults of, 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 of elderly age and younger age. All smattering of demographics. And they're at this place and there's no water. The people, of course, are... They don't like this, not one bit. And they start to blame Moses. He's the leader, it's his fault. Moses, why would you lead us here? Moses, what in the world are you doing? Who are you being leaded by? Who, who's informing you? What are we doing? Why, why are we here? But what happens is more, you have to understand, this distrust of Israel and some of the leaders that were perhaps amongst the horde... More than just complain, they start to quarrel. They start to almost come to blows with Moses. They're not just verbally quarreling with Moses. They're almost coming to physical altercations with Moses. So much so that Moses cries out to God, that God, you got to help me, because I'm on the verge of being stoned. <laughs> That's how desperate this situation is looking. That's how desperate the situation got. That's how deep the the distrust and the disbelief of the people of God was. And so now, even with all of Israel in an uproar, all of Israel, they are in a tizzy. And Moses is fearing for his life. God still provides. Look at verse number six. Or uh, look, jump back to verse five. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on. Before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. It's an amazing Miracle, right? It's a miraculous moment of provision and blessing. God meeting his people's need in their moment of desperation. But yet, what is so fascinating is that Massa is not known as a place of blessing. It's not known for its miraculous provision. What is it known for? A site of unbelief. Notice verse 7. And he called, that is Moses called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? You see, back in our text. Moses jogs their memory, perhaps. An awful memory. One that they would rather probably forget. Remember what happened when you... Failed to trust in the provision of the Lord. Let's not repeat that. He doesn't want to repeat of that event. And so he exhorts them to diligently keep all of God's words. So now you understand this moment. The reverence and the obedience of God's people is a response. To God himself and what he has accomplished. It's response so that they don't forget. Look again at verse number 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers. To Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob to give you. With great and good cities that you did not build. And houses full of all good things that you did not fill. And cisterns that you did not dig. And vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care. Lest... You forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, you understand? All of the reason for all those commands, the reason for Moses' sermon here in this moment, was all so that the people of God would remember. And specifically, that they would remember what God had accomplished for them. Even generations after the fact. Jump down to verse number 20. He, this comes out to the surface so clearly. Notice what he says. He uses this illustration, Moses does. Verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Why are we obeying? Why are we doing this? What are we, what are we doing through all of these things, all of these rituals, all of these procedures, all of these schedules? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders and great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. And the Lord has commanded us to do all these things, all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always. That he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. All of those regulations all of those rituals they were not cold and lifeless check boxes israel was made to follow what were they they were a divinely instituted system by of ongoing remembrance of what god had done in his mercy and in his love long after moses was in the grave israel was still bound to obey and revere this God, the God who had chosen them, this God who had delivered them, this God who had brought them out so that they might be his people, the channel through which he was going to bless the world. He had redeemed them and brought them out of every bitter experience, even when they didn't deserve it. And this is what was to be kept and preserved in their memory, lest they forget. This idea of remembering is central to everything that they believed and did. And much of their religious traditions were all about that, keeping these things in mind. As he says in verse number 6, And today these things shall be on your heart. Like Israel, I think we are... Prone to forget what God has done. The blessings that we have enjoyed, the good things that we have been given, not because we've earned it or done anything to deserve it, but because God is just that type of God. And the more we forget, the less grateful we become, and the less grateful we become, the more like we are to disbelieve and to distrust this God Himself and His words. You see, I think what Moses is talking about here, a failure to remember, it's not a minor thing. In fact, it's an error that Moses is here trying to insinuate. It has generational repercussions. Why else, think about why else would Moses address the people in front of him with an eye towards the generation that's going to come after them? Because he stood, that's how fragile belief is. Case in point, for the first time in 80 years, a recent Gallup poll that tracks church attendance all across of America fell below 50%. It's actually now at 47 whereas in 1999, that same poll was reading 70%. And we might, there's a lot of reasons, a lot of reasons that we could go into. Time uh, escapes us from doing so, but what, what, do, you think, what do you think this tells us? I think it tells us everything. When we see generations of young people. Showing a lack of reverence for the things of God. And almost zero interest in obeying and following what he says. We could be like, oh, back in my day. The result, what are they the results of? They were results of a failure to remember To remember why we revere and why we obey God. Because of what he's done. This is why the church exists. Why are we here? To yes, to yes, to obey and yes, to revere. But we're here most pointedly and most deeply and most decidedly to remember. That's why this exists. These gatherings are collective and corporate times where we come together as the people of God to remember what God has accomplished for you and for me and our response to what he has accomplished is reverence and obedience in light of what he's done. And week after week after week, this is what we are called to do. We are called to gather here and remember what the God of all did through Christ to bring us not just out of slavery to a foreign nation, but out of slavery to sin and death and hell and darkness and this is what should be on our hearts our deliverance is sure and steadfast And unmovable and unwavering. Not because we've paid it forward enough. Not because we've deserved it. Not because we've done anything to deserve it. But only because because the Son of God Himself has delivered us by paying our ransom on the cross. Point blank. That's why we're here. To remember that. By the way. Which is what all of those things were pointing to. All of those events and And festivals and all of those things that God was trying to usher his people to remember. They were remembering the exodus. What are we remembering? We're remembering Golgotha. And as we remember, we revere the one who has done such great things for us. And as we revere this one who has done such great things for us, we respond by obeying what he has said. This is the good news that we are urged to keep in mind, to keep on our hearts. We remember it by revering it, and we revere it by living in light of what is accomplished. Whatever you resolve to do in this new year, whatever your resolutions are, I hope that you see that the the deepest and the truest resolutions that you need, that this church itself needs, that our society and community needs, is resolve to obey, but also more than that, a resolve to revere, and yes, even more than that, resolve to remember. To remember what God has done. Because as we walk into a future that's unknown, that we're not sure what it's going to be filled with, we're not sure what kind of events and Things that are going to come up on the calendar. What is the only sustaining thing that will keep you, that will guard you, that will protect and preserve you throughout all of those ebbs and flows that might be in front of you? It's what God has done. Remember, my friends, this morning. Remember and revere and obey this God who has brought you out who has brought you out of a kingdom of darkness and has brought you in to his kingdom of light. Live according to the words of the Lord. Let us all resolve to do just that. Let us pray.